After being here for many years, uh, seeing God's faithfulness and goodness to this church, uh, I've experienced it and continue to pray for you. And we want to uh, think a little bit about God's goodness and faithfulness to this church and to us as believers. And so I invite you to take a Bible and go to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. And as you're making your way there, let me just kind of set the context for a second. It's the late 530s B.C. The Persian king Cyrus had issued a decree for the Jewish exiles, allowing them to go back to Jerusalem. Around 40,000 or so took him up on that. They made the journey back. And as we approach our passage, it's likely just a few weeks after their return. Before we read the word, though, let's ask God's blessing upon it. Father in heaven, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who takes the word and uses it in our lives. And we pray that as we come to it, that you would work powerfully within us to assure us of your love and commitment and to spur us on towards love and good deeds. This we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Hear the word of God, starting in verse 1, Ezra chapter 3. When the, seven month, when, the seven, when the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the seventh day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that, that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltio, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priest and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites for, from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with the trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, 
when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. We praise the Lord that He has given us His Word and that He promises to use it in our lives today. Twenty-two years ago, Melody and I walked into the Petersons' home, and we didn't know anybody there. We had received a notice in the mail about a new PCA church gathering in Douglas County. I called up Dick Kane, who was the church planting pastor, and he told me where to go and what time to be there. Our son Jonathan, he was not quite two years old, and Rebecca was three weeks old. But quickly, we found Grace Prez to be a home And not only because God's grace in Christ was preached to us, but also because the people were so gracious. The Fowlers, the Swaffords, the Thomasons, the Freemans, and many more. They took us in, and they loved us. For 20 years, our Reformed and Presbyterian teeth were cut here at this church. Our love for Christ was deepened, and we developed good and lasting friendships that continue to this day. And the effect of this church has not only been felt by my family, but by hundreds of others, and that is not an exaggeration. This church has been like a mother, nursing little ones and feeding the mature in Christ. And in her bosom, grace has even taken some to heaven. Through this church, people in West Metro Atlanta have been converted. Many have been impacted in Central and South America, Western Europe, and South Asia. Not to mention ministers like Chad Watkins, Ross Hodges, John Stovall, Nathan Morgan, and Greg Bausma that have been raised up through the faithful ministry of this congregation. We praise God for His work in and through this church over the last 20 years. There's an important question that needs to be asked. How is grace going to make it another 20 years? Or the next 100 years? Or until Christ returns? Ezra 3 gives us an answer. How are you going to make it as a church? More personally, how are you as an individual going to make it? What commitments do you need to have? How about first, the right priorities? Upon Cyrus's decree, thousands of Jews returned to Judah. And in doing so, our text tells us that as one people, they worked. 
But upon what was their labor focused? Look at verse 2 again. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Uh, The returned exiles, they could have directed themselves to a whole host of activities. Uh, They could have started reconstructing the temple, rebuilding the, the city walls, or something else. But instead, it was the altar that was first. They focused on what was needed for sacrificing to God. Do you see that in our text? Look at verse 3. They set the altar in its place. And they did so despite opposition. There was a large number of folks that didn't take too kindly to the Hebrews coming back into the land. And if you keep reading the book of Ezra, you, you realize there were some nasty foes. But at this moment, the returned exiles, they didn't care who was standing opposite to them. Their priority was to give offering to the Lord's. And in particular, verse 4, they did this as as a part of the Feast of Booths. Do you remember what that was? It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It reminded the people how Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then constructed tents along the way. That's what they lived in. And now here we find these returned exiles many years later who've only been back just a few weeks celebrating this feast. And, friends, doing so would not have been easy. You know that camping is not a piece of cake, at least not the kind of camping that's done here. Melody and I, we we don't do camping. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt, you can have mine. But these returned exiles, they faithfully kept this feast despite the challenges. And in celebrating, they offered up tons of sacrifices. Numbers chapter 29 lets us know that there were at least 200 that were to be given. That's a lot of animals that could have been used here for something else. So why did they sacrifice them? Because they had the right priorities in place. Specifically, they focused on right worship. Verse 2, they worship God as it is written. Verse 4, they sacrificed according to the rule of Scripture. They were worshiping God in a way that was regulated by the Word. And they did that because they knew they needed to worship God according to the Word. As GPC looks forward to decades more, she must have the right priorities in place. And as seen here, she must worship God according to Scripture. That must be first. In fact, she must be desperate to worship God. Brothers and sisters, don't budge an inch here. Don't compromise in this area. History has shown that many a churches who for years were faithful buckled over time. They slowly began to slip in their commitment to Scripture-regulated worship. And they weren't desperate to meet with God. 
Do you know where this compromise is often felt first? The evening service. Did you notice in our text how the returned exiles offered sacrifices morning and evening? It's meant to serve as a pattern for us in worship. It means we must fight hard to keep a commitment to the Sunday evening service. Now, I understand that not everyone can come. Providential hindrances, I get that. But if you do come, your soul will be blessed. I remember very well when Grace first started the evening service. Melody and I had four kids, ages six and under. And I thought, we're going to do what? We're going to come back to church at six o'clock with our kids? You're crazy. It's going to disrupt our children's schedules. But over the next 15 years, the evening service was one of the best decisions this church made. It profoundly impacted me and my family and many others because it provided an opportunity for us to serve God praise and for Him to serve us His gospel. And isn't that what you need? More gospel, more scripture, and not less. Keep the right priorities. Stay committed to right worship. Hold fast to the evening service and cry out to God to give you a heart that is desperate to meet with the Lord. And yet there is another priority in these first five verses that we need to think about. It's being committed to a right doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. Big reason why the returned exiles offered so many sacrifices was because they knew they were sinners. They required God's mercy. Five times, you can count them if you want to, five times in verses 1 through 5, it mentions how they presented burnt offerings on the altar. And burnt offerings were specifically given for the forgiveness of sins. And why did they do it so much? Because they knew they were transgressors. They could have said with the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone. Is that our confession today? Now, I know as good Presbyterians, we, we, we like to think we wrote the book on depravity. We, we tend to believe, I got this one down pat. But do we really? Listen carefully. Almost every problem in the church begins here with an unwillingness to admit with the hymn writer, I am all unrighteousness, false and full of sin I am. And it shows itself when we don't humbly say to one another, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. If this church is going to continue, there must be an ongoing recognition and hatred of sin that we commit against God and that we commit against one another. And yet, we don't need to stop there, do we? 
if we did, if we just stopped with a confession of sin, we would all simply end up depressed. Because you know this, that for every look at yourself, what do you do? You take a thousand looks at Christ. You embrace a right doctrine of forgiveness, that you need forgiveness. And that forgiveness only comes through Christ, through Him who knew no sin but became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. Do you believe that your sins can be forgiven in Christ? The Puritan Richard Sibbs put it this way. If you could sin more than God could pardon, then you might have reason for despair. But you don't, because God is more gracious than you are wicked. Yes, your sin is big, but it is not bigger than Christ. And there is no greater priority for this church than to white-knuckle cling to this good news. Because the only road ahead for grace prez is one that is paved with gospel cement. It's upon the work of Christ that the sturdy path forward has been laid for you. So keep walking on it. Stay on it. Have the right priorities of right worship according to God's Word and a right doctrine of the forgiveness of sins centered on Christ. It's key for this church. Right priorities. But you also need to be committed to something else. Right pursuits. Because the correct priorities call for what? The correct pursuits. And what were the, what were the returned exiles seeking? Well, our text tells us that first, they were committed to, for, to, to give. How do we see that? Well, it seems that it didn't take the people long to reconstruct the altar. Likely it was less than a day. But then after some time, the people decided that they wanted to do something else. It was important for them to, to move ahead with other activities. The foundation of the temple was, was messed up, and they sought to rebuild it. What do you need to do that? For starters, you need, you need some people who know what they're doing. Not everybody wakes up knowing exactly what to do to rebuild the foundation of a temple. I mean, you don't use somebody that's trained to bake, to own, is only trained to bake cakes to, to write computer code, do you, for the newest video games? Of course not. Be foolish. No one would buy it. You need somebody who gets it, who understands what, what they're doing. Well, that's the same idea here in this text with the foundation. And of course, you need resources, lots of them. You need wood, rocks, and other things. Not to mention the fact you need, you need some money to be able to pay the, the building contractors. The folks who are actually going to do the hard labor. What did the returned exiles do? Verse 7. They gave money, food, and drink. They secured the resources necessary for construction. 
the king had provided for them through this grant that was given to the returned exiles. And, and these folks, they didn't keep that for themselves. They used it to honor the Lord's. They had the right pursuits, giving. Grace Prez, that is a pursuit that you need to continue to have. This church has sacrificially given much. As a result, churches have been planted and strengthened in Peru. Several more in England and Germany. New denominations are being started in Honduras and Albania. Work has, has and is being done in Cambodia and in Malaysia. College students have been saved and sanctified at KSU. The lives of babies have been preserved. The poor in Douglasville have been served. Seminarians and interns are being trained. Here and abroad, men, women, boys, and girls have had the Word implanted within them because of the giving of this church. Don't stop now. Excel in sacrificial and cheerful giving, especially because that's exactly what Christ did for you. He who is rich became poor so that you who are poor might become rich. Christ gave Himself for you. Let His generosity compel yours. That's not the only pursuit we find here in this text. Also, serve the Lord with fresh vigor. So we find these returned exiles doing. Verse 8, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they got busy leading. The Levites supervised the labor on the house of the Lord. They were all diligently doing God's work. They weren't sitting around worried about their enemies, whining about the difficulty of the work. They were busting their guts for the Lord. What about you? And don't say, Pastor Cliff, I, I, I'm too old to serve the Lord. Joshua 15, Caleb was 85, 85. And he was ready to open up a can of whooping on a race of giants. Don't say, well, I'm too young. Verse 8, 20-year-old priests were working. And 1 Kings 5, Naaman's servant girl, she was a child. And she told him the truth about where he could find deliverance. And don't say, well, I'm not serving in this community because Douglasville is going down the tubes. Weren't you going down the tubes? But then Jesus saved you. Take Christ to the streets of Douglas County. Spread His gospel across West Metro Atlanta. Open your homes. Get to know the lost at work. Minister to your extended families. Invite people to church. Don't hide in these walls. Don't run away from this community. Don't grow comfortable. Don't get distracted. 
Don't make excuses. Scatter yourselves and shine like lights. Give folks the only hope for sinners. Spend and be spent for the sake of Christ. Pray, evangelize, and disciple hard so that if God wills, in five years, this church has grown so much that you are having to plant another one. Plead for that. Work hard towards that. Trust God with that. Empty yourselves in service to Christ. And especially do so because of one more pursuit that characterizes you. You are devoted to God. You're devoted to God. We we see that was true of these returned exiles because look at what they were doing. Verse 10, when the the Levites, the priests, and and the nation gathered together, they worshiped God. There was loud singing. Verse 11, they sang from Psalm 100 about the Lord's goodness and steadfast love. Their zeal to give and, and serve was energized by a devotion to the Lord. And that's exactly what should compel ours. We know of God's goodness and steadfast love in greater ways, don't we? Because we stand on the other side of Christ's cross. Shouldn't our devotion to the Lord be more fervent? Dear Christian, Jesus died for you. He rose for you. Let his affection stir your spirit. As Samuel Rutherford put it, Christ's love is like the hottest of coals. Cast all the salt sea on it, and it will flame, because not even hell can quench his love. Christ's heart towards you It's meant to to blow your mind, thrill your heart, and move you to action, to have right pursuits of giving and serving, all because you're devoted to Christ. That's how grace can move forward for decades to come. That's how you can move forward another day. Keep serving. Keep giving. Keep being devoted to Christ. But also by lastly having the right perspective. The right perspective. When the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, what did the people do? Verse 12 tells us some of the older older folks amongst them that had seen Solomon's temple, they wept with a loud voice. Why did they do that? They realized the new temple would not be like the previous one. It would not be like the good old days. There'd be no Shekinah glory, no Ark of the Covenant, nothing like that. That was gone. And on one level, we can understand these people. We get where they're coming from. These octogenarians, they'd been through a lot. 
the exile, the return from exile, and now a less than glorious temple foundation. It was all too much for them. But pay careful attention. Their problem was is that their past controlled their present and clouded their future. Their past controlled their present and clouded their future. They allowed nostalgia to lead them to despair and then to despondency. Dear saints, don't let that be you. I, like many of you, have fond memories of the past here at this church. I remember well Pastor John playing the song, I've Got So Much, or Father Abraham to the Covenant Kids, and it lasting forever. It just wouldn't stop. Or John Carmen being dunked in the dunking booth right outside there at the Reformation celebration. It was great. Which, by the way, the next time you do that is Pastor David's turn. You can call me up, let me know, text me. I'll be the first one in line to drop him in the pool. Or how about the bus rides in Peru? The Humaya Inn in Tegus? The ladies' prayer circles? The men's Friday morning Bible studies? The small groups? The youth and young adults' ugly sweater Christmas parties? The fellowship after the evening service? And so much more. This is a great church. And it would be easy to let nostalgia set in, to say with Ecclesiastes 7.10, why were the former days better than these? But you know the problem with nostalgia, don't you? It distorts the past and paints it rosier than it really was. It leaves you discontent in the present, makes you fearful of and lazy in the future, and it strips you of hope for what lies ahead. Don't do it. Don't let a smaltziness set in here. Instead, have the perspective we find in our text, which was one of joyful anticipation. Verse 12, many shouted aloud for joy. Some bemoan the present in light of the past, that's true. But others praised God and, and eagerly sought to move ahead in faithfulness. And that's to be us. Blessing the Lord who has blessed us and who has promised future blessings. In fact, I want you to do this. Let there be no question that Grace Prez has a joyful expectation of the future. That was not the case in verse 13. Some were joyful. Others were weeping. And you couldn't tell which expression was dominant. Let that not be this church. May a glad anticipation characterize Grace Presbyterian because you know God is mighty. Ephesians 
He can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. And I don't know about you, but I can ask and think of a lot for Grace Presbyterian Church. And yet, what I can ask or think will never be outstripped. God is powerful to cheerfully ask and expect Him to work. And have this joyful anticipation because you know that God is faithful. This church has seen it repeatedly. And the Lord won't stop being faithful in the days ahead. Do you know why? It's because, dear saints, He loves you. God loves this church. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, and He laid on His life for His friends. Brothers and sisters, that's you. And Christ's love is is meant to further your confidence in Him. And it's meant to make you joyful. I know that some of you here, your bodies are falling apart. Maybe your marriages are difficult. Your children are wayward. You're wrestling with sin. I know your times, they may be tough. But do you know the great thing about biblical, joyful anticipation? It's one that's not rooted in your circumstances. Your difficulties don't determine your joy. Christ's love does. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, your gladness and confidence is controlled by the love of Christ. So let me ask you then, if right now, this morning, you are struggling to have a glad expectation for the next chapter of your life or the next chapter of the life of Grace Presbyterian, what do you do? Quit focusing on your troubles and keep coming back to the love of God in Christ. I know that's easier said than done. I get that. But be encouraged because the loveliness of Christ is more attractive than the loathsomeness of your troubles. Christ is more beautiful than anything else in this world. Certainly your hardship. One Puritan said, Love is to joy as fuel is to the fire. So let Christ's love foster a joyful expectation within you. Keep eyeing Christ. Because in gazing at Christ, you will be less distracted by your circumstances. You'll be more taken up with your Savior which will enable you to go onward and upward in Christ. I know this may be a little bit sobering of me to say, but some of you, you may not be around the next anniversary, 40, 50 year anniversary. And yet at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter, does it? Because you've heard this before, you only have one life.
It's all you've got. What are you going to do with it? Think about that question. I have one life to live. Where's it going? What am I doing with it? How about this? Empty it for Christ, who emptied himself for you. And as long as the Lord would have you here, do it at Grace Presbyterian Church. Have the right priorities, the right pursuits, and the right perspective. And Lord willing, I'll see you in another 20 years, and we can rehearse God's faithfulness together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. You are full of grace and truth. You are a God who is steadfast in your affection. And time and time again, you show it. You've shown it in the life of this church. And you've shown it in our lives individually. We pray that in light of your mercy, especially shown in Christ, that you would help us, O Lord, Help us to have the right priorities, the right pursuits, and the right perspective. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond by singing our hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's number 481. Let's stand and sing.